everyone, and welcome back to the Gene Panel Podcast. So for today's episode, we're actually joined by a very special guest. Hey guys, I'm Aideen. I'm usually a co-producer for the podcast, but I'm tagging along to this episode to talk about one of the best sci-fi action and adventure movies of all time, Jurassic Park. But before we start this episode, we want to take a moment to acknowledge and voice our support for the protests around the world to end racism. We support Black Lives Matter protesters and implore all of our listeners to join us as we take the time to reflect on our own racist biases and actively educate ourselves. Part of this is achieved by drawing attention to Black voices, and we encourage you to seek out the media that is providing true representation. Today's episode will be posted alongside a list of podcasts hosted by Black people that you may be interested in. On top of this, we'd like to acknowledge that our field of study, genetics, has been weaponized to advance racist ideology and has been used to justify discrimination against people of color. We understand that eugenics is not a thing of the past and that revered geneticists are guilty of exploiting genetics to solidify racist ideology. James Watson, a co-discoverer of the DNA double helix, himself has attempted to use genetics to suggest that non-white people are of lower intelligence. The members of Gene Panel Podcast would like to take this opportunity to formally condemn the use of genetics to further any racist agenda, and we commit to scrutinizing our own information for anything that could be related to scientific racism. Today's episode is in no way trying to take away from the gravity of the situation and the importance of this moment in time. With that in mind, we hope that you enjoy today's episode. So to further introduce myself, um, Unlike these guys, I'm not doing my undergrad in genetics program. I'm currently doing a double major in human biology and immunology. And I know that it sounds like the three of us couldn't be farther away from the fields required to talk about this topic with any authority like paleontology or evolutionary biology or any of that jazz. But we're going to give it a try anyway, because the genetic, the genetic claims in this book slash movie um, are absolutely fascinating and too cool to not try to unpack. It goes without saying that there are massive spoilers ahead for Jurassic Park, the movie, and the book, as Julian will remind us many times. <laughs> I mean, so if you haven't watched the movie at this point, I mean, I'm not going to say anything. And by the way, we're focusing mostly on the film then, rather than the book. Yeah. And yeah. to give a brief overview of what we're going to be talking about uh, in this episode is that so we're going to be asking whether Jurassic Park is even possible from a scientific perspective, particularly looking at the genetics, because this is a genetics based podcast. Um, and yeah, and we're going to go on from there. So a quick ditty I found actually while I was doing some of the research for the episode, um, which, by the way, um, some of the research that I did came from this book called Dinosaur in a Haystack by Stephen J. Gold, which is essentially a bunch of short essays about natural history put together. Highly recommend. Um, and then the and he talks about Jurassic Park, one of his essays, and he mentions how he talked to the author of the Jurassic Park book series and how um, he, the author wasn't actually aware that basically almost every single dinosaur in Jurassic Park is actually from the Cretaceous period rather than from the Jurassic period. Uh, like the T-Rex and the Velociraptor and the Triceratops, those are all from the Cretaceous period, which is a so kind of a funny thing. the entire franchise is a scam. Basically. So it's just a big scam. Yeah. Cretaceous okay. Park doesn't have the same ring to it, though. Yeah, yeah. He actually goes on to say that the reasoning mm -hmm. was that um, was for, like, the cover of the book. <laughs> so, why, so why couldn't he just use dinosaurs from the Jurassic period? Were they just not cool <laughs> he, did, he didn't know... <laughs> Oh, that's a shame. Well, anyways, in the movie, there's this part, I think it's towards the beginning of the movie, right, where the some of the protagonists go into the park, and they see this, like, film where 
the the part goes on to tell them how they went about creating dinosaurs. And that small portion of the movie uh, goes in to talk about genetics. And in that portion, they the scientists go on to say that they utilized blood that's present in mosquitoes from that time, the dinosaur era, um, that were trapped in amber or petrified sap. And so the idea behind it was that the blood... Well, the idea behind it was that the mosquitoes would take the blood from the dinosaurs so they would have dinosaur blood inside them and they would use that blood as their primary source for DNA to create the dinosaurs. And so firstly, we were curious to see, well, we were curious as to how the scientists would actually go about distinguishing between the blood of different dinosaur species within that mosquito sample, right? Because presumably the mosquitoes would go about, you know, taking blood from different dinosaur species, not just one. So yeah, unless it's a picky either. Right. <laughs> Call back. Um, <laughs> but this is interesting See? because one of the big issues um, with the genetics behind Jurassic Park, and it's going to come up often in this episode, you'll find, is Very that often. right? Is that we don't know the entire genome of any one dinosaur species, um, let alone yeah. the 39 species in the park. So if we don't even know what the genome looks like, how are we supposed to go about distinguishing the genomes from different dinosaur species in the first place? Right. Like Julian said, right, one of their first issues is going to be taking a mosquito and having to extract the dinosaur DNA. But then, uh, for instance, uh, separating T-Rex DNA from Velociraptor DNA. That's one issue. But then another issue is that DNA is not known to be a geologically stable compound, right? Its half-life is only 521 years which means that in 521 years, uh, half of the bonds between the nucleotides are going to be denatured. So they're just not going to be double-stranded anymore. According to a Nature article in the International Weekly Journal of Science, it states that even in a bone at an ideal preservation temperature of negative 5 degrees Celsius, effectively every bond would be destroyed after a maximum of 6.8 million years. Now, taken into consideration that the most recent dinosaur went extinct 65 million years ago, we wouldn't have enough sequence information to be able to clone dinosaurs. So again, it's like, it's like Julian said, they wouldn't have enough information in order to be able to create dinosaurs. Right. Now, uh, in the movie, they actually acknowledge this a little bit to a certain extent. Obviously, we, we take it to the next level of saying that they wouldn't have any DNA in the first place, or at least not enough to make um, dinosaurs. Um, so in the movie, they say that in the mosquito blood, uh, the dinosaur blood that's in the mosquito, I guess, um, doesn't have enough DNA information to make an entire dinosaur. So the entire genome is not there. And so the way the movie tries to go about fixing this is by introducing uh, frog DNA into the gaps uh, of the dinosaur DNA so that you can kind of rec- recapitulate the whole genome. Um, now, can frog DNA actually be used to make a viable organism? I'm going to say that's a hard no. <laughs> so, like, first off, frogs are not close evolutionary relatives. Maybe that's, like, what people thought back then. But now recent recent research suggests that dinosaurs are probably more related to organisms such as birds. Right. And secondly, like if we're really generous and we assume that they were able to obtain like 70% of dinosaur DNA from the blood and then kind of just filled in 30% with um, frog DNA, 
to construct dinosaurs. It's not really possible to make an organism by just filling in the gaps. Like organisms are not just the summation of singular genes. It also involves interactions with other genes. Organisms are more like integrated entities in that sense. So for example, we can't just use like 50% of our genome to make half of a person. You'd get nothing functional at all. How would we even know what part of the frog genome to incorporate? And how would we even know what 70% of the dinosaur's genome we have without um, a full genome to compare it to? We're not aware of any regulatory elements present in dinosaur genomes, but we'd probably assume that they had silencing and euchromatin and different regulatory elements throughout their genome. And it's a really important aspect of cells and gene expression um, that like genes and proteins are able to be controlled in super fine ways. Um, certain regulation is general, but again, you also have regulation that is really specific to dinosaurs. And we assume that the scientists would have no knowledge of this. Um, we kind of think that maybe overexpressing a certain dinosaur gene um, would be or could be lethal. Yeah, so, like, for example, let's say like you integrate a frog DNA piece into it, and that frog DNA has some regulatory element that ends up overexpressing another dinosaur gene. And there was no way we could have foreseen that happening. And then yeah. the dinosaur doesn't, you know, it dies. Totally. And like, as you can see, the problem always leads back to not having a full genome or knowledge of the genes in a dinosaur's genome in the first place. So now the next step is to talk about developmental biology. So if we surpass the genome problem, the next uh, st step, I guess, would be to develop the organism into a dinosaur. So this takes us back to the gene, ed gene editing episode where we hypothesized about potentially making a human with wings and how this required uh, so-called wing genes and how a problem that arises is that these genes involved in wing production can actually interfere with genes that are involved in the production of a normal human being, such as their arms, their legs, or whatnot, right? So in this case, we don't believe that a frog developmental gene is going to be able to complement for a dinosaur developmental gene. So let's start at the base and talk about the necessary components for embryogenesis. So you really need the proper environment for embryological growth and even the development of the oocyte before fertilization. And this is all provided by maternal deposition. So the mother deposits these products such as RNAs and proteins into the egg that would be required for development um, up until the zygote, which is the union of the sperm and the egg, what takes control of its own development. So to elaborate a bit on the maternally loaded factors, these are just, again, RNAs and proteins that are able to drive fundamental cellular processes and they can specify cell fates and patterns. So for instance, our body plan, uh, which is what the name implies. It plans out where your arms are going to be, your head, etc. And then this is where a transition is going to occur eventually, whereby the zygote is going to control its own development. So all in all, you would really need to know the genes that are involved in development, since the scientists in the movie aren't just making a dinosaur, you know, just immediately making a dinosaur. They're starting from the egg stage and then having that develop into a baby dinosaur. Yeah, so once again, this is kind of the, the issue of not knowing the genome kind of goes into play again. If we don't know the genome of a dinosaur, how are we supposed to know what the maternal genes are that provide all this necessary uh, products for developing the embryo? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when you look at a dinosaur and then you look at, you know, another animal, let's say a ferret, 
they look inherently different. So there must be different genes driving something that, that looks like a dinosaur versus something that looks like a fair. So that suggests that we can't just interchange developmental genes from organism A to organism B and expect that to work. It really doesn't work that way. And in fact, a review paper written by Vasen Hauji Chow and Lipschitz on developmental biology, particularly proteins of maternally loaded factors, such as RNA binding proteins, so proteins that bind RNA. Um, and these RNA binding proteins regulate stabilization of maternal mRNAs in the egg or their destabilization during the transition between maternal control to zygotic control. And these particular RNA binding proteins that control these processes tend to vary from organism to organism, as to suggest that we aren't entirely sure that, you know, a RNA binding protein in, let's say, a frog can actually control and facilitate development in a dinosaur. So it's not a guarantee that frog developmental genes are going to complement missing dinosaur genes. Again, we don't even know dinosaur developmental genes, let alone whether this complementation can occur. Also, the egg itself, you know, like the eggshell, um, is important. So the movie doesn't really specify what the eggshell is actually made of. And also, we know from other egg-laying animals that the egg needs to have a nutrient supply for the embryo. Uh, for example, yolk. So do the scientists already know what nutrients a dinosaur embryo would require? Are they basing it off of kind of like birds, for example, because they're close relatives? Um, also, how do the dino babies actually break out of the eggs? Because again... Would the eggshell, the material it's made of matter in this case, as for example, the thickness matter? Um, so now we talked about kind of the creation process of bringing back a dinosaur, but that's not all we can talk about. So interestingly enough, Jurassic Park also delves into not only how to make a dinosaur, but also ways in which to control them and kind of monitor them. So one of these yeah, methods, right. Go ahead. Yeah, because the last thing you'd want is just a bunch of dinosaurs breaking loose out of the park. Right. God forbid that would happen, and then you just have dinosaurs everywhere yeah can you imagine dinosaurs yeah. roaming around the park yeah can't believe it anyways yeah, i can't believe it, <laughs> it happens in the movie <laughs> so, so i guess these methods aren't that good as we'll go nope. on to prove i guess <laughs> yeah. anyways so one of these methods for controlling the dinosaurs that we found most intriguing has to do with sex determination so whether you're a male or female um now in jurassic park the dinosaurs are all engineered to be females why? Well, this way the park can manage and control the breeding of dinosaurs so that no new dinosaurs are born. So how exactly does the park achieve this? So first we have to talk about sex chromosomes. Sex chromosomes are defined as a type of chromosome that participates in sex determination from genome.gov. And as you probably know, in humans, we have X and Y sex chromosomes. Although there are some variation in sex chromosome combinations in humans, in general, we consider having two X chromosomes as genetically female and having an XY combination of chromosomes as genetically male. Different organisms have different modes of sex determination, though. For example, in fruit flies, it is based on a ratio of X chromosomes to autosomes. And autosomes in this case is just, they're just chromosomes that aren't sex chromosomes, by the way. I don't yeah. think we've defined that ever. They're not, they're not involved in sex determination. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. they, well, not in our case, but they could be in other organisms, as we'll later find out. Yeah. Basically, as we've mentioned, the scientists in Jurassic Park supplemented the little dinosaur DNA they could obtain with frog DNA. And later in the film, this has like dire consequences because 
upon discovery of hatched eggs in the park, it's revealed by young Jeff Goldblum, aka Dr. Ian Malcolm, our resident chaos theorist, that West African frogs are known to change sex in the wild to sustain their population, and that the dinosaur has somehow changed sex in the park in order to breed. Okay, so let's first consider what we discussed earlier about making this type of like Frogosaurus rex. Frogs have very unique sex chromosomes. In a review article published by the Amphibian Research Center at Hiroshima University, it stated that most amphibians have homomorphic or undifferentiated sex chromosomes in both sexes. So what this means is, quote, the X and Y or Z and W chromosomes exhibit few differences from each other in size and gene content and are difficult or impossible to distinguish from karyotype data alone. And I'm assuming and I that, mention, oh, yeah, go oh, for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess we, we both have the same idea of defining what a karyotype is, but this is essentially a means of physically looking at the chromosome. So this is an in-lab procedure where you extract the uh, nucleic material, and then you're able to look at, for instance, the size and the shape of each chromosome. So this yeah. is essentially saying that the X and Y are not distinguishable. Yeah, absolutely. So in contrast, like organisms like mammals and birds have heteromorphic sex chromosomes in one sex, which means that sex chromosomes are, quote, karyotypically highly distinct from one another. And in these cases, the X and Y or Z and W chromosomes show major differences in size and gene content. And I'm assuming so, by, uh, sorry, I'm assuming by Z and W chromosomes, you mean that's like the frog equivalent of the human X and Y? Um, I think that's the notation used in birds. Right. Oh, okay, in birds. Okay, got it. Yeah, so kind of like what we were saying before, that it's widely thought that birds, namely chickens, are the closest living relatives to dinosaur big shots like the T-Rex. That's amazing. Oh, right? <laughs> um, of course, we can't be sure how these chromosomes have changed over millions of years, but we can kind of speculate that attempting to use homomorphic sex chromosomes from amphibians may be too far away from the sex chromosomes that dinosaurs had. So basically, we speculate that sex chromosomes of amphibians would be genetically incompatible to even facilitate sex determination in the engineered dinosaurs, and that a more promising approach would probably be to use avian DNA. So it's likely that the whole sex switching that's happening in the dinosaurs is attributed to the frogs, or at least that's what the movie likes to chalk it up to. Um, so we can assume that, well, that would mean that the frog DNA that was used to fill in the random gaps in the dinosaur DNA um, that was obtained from the blood, all of those frog DNAs had to have that sex switching factor in it, which would be like an insane coincidence for all the dinosaurs to have that. Um, so also we don't know how the frog genes responsible for sex discrimination and or switching might interact with the um, already identified dinosaur genes. And in the case that this was not a miracle coincidence, that would mean that all the dinosaurs were purposefully engineered to have the frog sex determination and switching genes, which that seems like a not great thing to do because that doesn't seem to have any desired effect at all. In fact, it actually kind of screws them over. <laughs> so I mean, it could be a plot twist. I mean, it's, it's well, a plot twist. So, yeah, so it could be two things. So either the scientists aren't as smart as we think them to be or that one of the scientists might have purposely sabotaged all the dinosaurs. <laughs> Which I, I, yeah, I think the latter is more likely. <laughs> it's a hidden plot story. Yeah. It's a hidden yeah. plot line. 
Another way in which the Jurassic Park controlled their dinosaurs is through the selection of dinosaurs through their diet. Um, This way, the scientists can kind of systematically kill off dinosaurs easily for whatever reason, like preventing the dinosaurs from escaping the park. So essentially kind of like a a built-in off switch for the dinosaurs. Exactly how do they control the dinosaurs' diet? Well, there's these things called essential nutrients, uh, which are compounds that our body requires in order to function and keep us alive, hence the name essential. Now, in many cases, these are things that our body cannot make since it lacks the proper genes to do so. So we would have to obtain them from our diet in this case. Now, according to the movie, lysine, which is an amino acid, is non-essential. So it assumes that the dinosaur can already make it by itself, right? So by definition of essential, the body can't make it, so non-essential, it can. Therefore, in Jurassic Park, the dinosaurs were genetically engineered in such a way so that they can't make their own lysine. So if you stop giving them lysine, they die. So this way they can kind of control, um, selectively control dinosaurs through their diet. However, most organisms, including ourselves, actually, um, we already know that we can't make our own lysine. So it's very unlikely that dinosaurs could make their own lysine, actually making it an essential amino acid even for them. Thus, a lysine deficiency gene insertion, so again, the the whole genetically engineering it into the dinosaur thing, is kind of redundant because if it already lacks the ability to make lysine, what's the point of introducing a lysine deficiency gene in the first place? Exactly. So all you got to do is stop feeding lysine whenever you want to kill the dinosaurs. The genetic engineering was pointless, and I guess the only purpose it served in the movie was to make it all appear more scientific and more professional. But in the end, it just ended up making uh, wasting the scientist's time and energy. <laughs> exactly. But we, I must say that the idea is respectable because it is, in fact, what's done in the lab, as in the idea of selection through diets and nutrients. So it's useful if the organism you're dealing with can produce the nutrients such as lysine. So for bacteria, it's a non-essential amino acid. So... Let me bring up a scenario. You're studying this new gene that you found and you want to study it in a bacteria. So, but the bacteria doesn't have this gene. So to introduce this gene into a bacteria, you would do so on a plasmid. On this plasmid, let's say you have a lysine gene um, and then the bacteria you're putting it into, uh, you've mutated it such that it can't make its own lysine. So this way uh, you can select for any bacteria that's received this plasmid which again has your gene of interest by selecting for those that can make their own lysine. Right. So, so take lysine. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the plasmid has your gene of interest and the lysine gene. And the lysine gene in this case serves as a marker to make sure yeah. that you're only studying bacteria that receive the plasmid because you don't want to study lysine that don't have the plasmid and yeah. therefore don't have your gene of interest in the first place. Yeah. So you take away lysine. Uh, from the petri dish and then you put the bacteria on it and only the bacteria that receive that plasmid will survive so this is how lysine selection or this lysine contingency can be used in real life so applaud to the director of this film (laughs) (laughs) they read up on uh, lab techniques only in bacteria though (laughs) apparently yeah yeah so now we've kind of laid out a bunch of reasons why uh 
Jurassic Park isn't possible from specifically a genetic standpoint. Hopefully that didn't ruin the movie for you. That wasn't the intent. It's, it, it's still a great movie. Fun. Like, yeah. you're not supposed oh, yeah, to for sure. genetically analyze every single movie. Right. It's, it's just not, yeah. A movie wouldn't be a movie without its impossibilities. Right. So now that we've kind of talked about, again, all these like very specific instances of why the movie is, is wrong and doing what it did. Um, the main, main reason why this is not possible is because of the lack of resources and information. Um, so most times we say something is impossible. It's because of our own lack of imagination and openness regarding a future discovery. For example, the colonization of Mars might have seemed impossible before, but now as new technology has been developed, the endeavor can become reality. However, in this particular case with Jurassic Park, we're talking about something that is in the past rather than the future. And what I mean by that is that we simply don't have the resources or information um, and they can't be recovered either. So I'm talking about fossils, dinosaur DNA, etc. So again, kind of like the first point we brought up in the episode, how we wouldn't have DNA in the first place. That's the primary resource you'd need. So you, this wouldn't even be possible. Um, no matter what type of technology you had, unless you developed a time machine, but that's a whole different debate in its own. <laughs> um, and although we have talked about how the undertaking of developing a prehistoric dinosaur park is impossible, fiction like Jurassic Park is still significant in the sense that it stimulates interesting and fun thought experiments like this one that can not only entertain, but also provoke scientific thought and even research. Right. So think of Black Mirror, you know, this popular show that really certain episodes are very thought provoking. And the reason it's able to provoke this thought is that it exaggerates some existing point within society and then because it magnifies it there's so much detail you can see it in so much more detail and you know you can analyze it in that sense so you can discuss it as a result yeah good netflix show good netflix show yeah For we're sure. not sponsored though no <laughs> um i guess like just to add on to that it's like that basically like fiction can promote discussion about the ethics behind all these like theoretical scenarios yeah. and we can talk about the consequences of bringing back dinosaurs, even though Jurassic Park warns us against overdoing it. It also forces us to examine what elements of science fiction we do want to pursue. So like, for instance, some of this technology in Jurassic Park could be actually useful like today when we're trying to consider how we could salvage our current ecosystems that are in jeopardy at this environmental tipping point with climate change. We don't really know where we should draw the line. The most notable difference, like Julian was saying, was that scientists could obtain all this like DNA. We have complete DNA samples from these species that are really critically endangered. And indeed, there have been efforts to create viable embryos for species on the brink of extinction. What makes our future endeavors in saving extinct organisms different from Jurassic Park? I mean, we could say that we probably wouldn't put extinct organisms into an amusement park, but with capitalism, who knows? And like, we're still kind of trying to play God, which was a huge like um, theme in the movie right. with our resident chaos theorist yeah. in Malcolm being like, <laughs> you guys are playing God. Yeah. <laughs> and if we do consider bringing back a species that is either already extinct or is on the brink of extinction, we have to consider that when we do bring it back, we have to make sure it doesn't go extinct again. For example, with polar bears and, and climate change, right? If we were to bring back polar bears in a time where their habitat is essentially gone, you know, then they're just going to go extinct again. Um, yeah. Also considering and the issue of uh, pr uh, parental imprinting, 
And what that means, it's essentially where a parent kind of teaches their offspring how to behave in the wild and how to basically survive on their own, right? So if we bring back polar bears once they're already extinct, we have to be able to teach them how to hunt seals, for example. Like, could we be able to do that? Yeah. And we also need to consider the fact that, you know, it may be nice. Let's say polar bears do go extinct and then we bring them back. Who's to say they're not going to serve as some invasive species? Because think about our discussion with uh, Dr. Davidson and how he brought up the cane toads in Australia, right? They brought uh, these cane toads into the field in order to deal with pests, but turns out these cane toads just overpopulated. Who's to say that if we bring back an extinct organism, the same is not going to happen? Yeah, we might put another species in danger by upsetting the balance of an ecosystem. Exactly. Totally. We are like definitely not clear on what we're doing and neither were the scientists in Jurassic Park, clearly. <laughs> like, can we really bring back extinct organisms without the suitable environment or ecolog- ecological niches that we need? What that would probably turn into is exactly what we were trying to avoid with capitalism. We would probably have like, oh, brought back from extinction zoos. And it's like, is that the equivalent of Jurassic Park, ethically speaking? It's like something that we really need to think about. And with that, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Gene Panel Podcast. Hope everyone uh, stays safe and healthy, especially in these times. And tune in next time where we're going to talk about something not actually related to genetics, but uh, we're going to talk about our own experiences with the university life and the university lifestyle. <laughs>